One of the highlights of going to Israel is to visit a place known as the Garden Tomb. It is the place where many Protestants, many evangelicals, believe that Jesus was crucified, buried, and then rose again. Whenever I lead a tour to Israel, we close our time, usually close our time, at the Garden Tomb by having communion there. It's a precious time. It's always special because not only do we remember and we reflect on the meaning of our Lord's death, but being at that site, we actually have a visual reminder right in front of us because right next to the garden tomb is a rock wall which resembles a skull. A skull is the meaning of the word Golgotha. Or Calvary. It's the place where the New Testament says Jesus was crucified. And if this was, and there's no way of proving it, but if this was the actual place of our Lord's crucifixion, then what we're looking at in the setting of observing the Lord's Supper at the Garden Tomb, it's a very visible, it's a very graphic, it's a very moving reminder that Jesus indeed was crucified for us. And that's exactly the purpose for which we are to gather in order to observe the Lord's Supper, to remember Christ's death for us. Now, you don't need to visit the Holy Land to do this because the New Testament makes it very clear that regardless of where you're located, where you're situated, if you're a Christian, then you are to regularly partake of the Lord's Supper. And we do this for the purpose of reflecting and remembering that Christ's death was on our behalf. And the place in the New Testament where we are taught this is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. So let's turn there, and I want to read it to you. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord that which also I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, these verses should be very familiar to you. They shouldn't be new to you because almost every time we observe the Lord's Supper, we actually look at these verses. However, tonight we're going to do more than look at these verses, more than read these verses. We're going to study these verses and examine the meaning of these verses. And the first thing to keep in mind as we begin our study tonight is to remember that the reason that Paul is even writing to the Corinthians about the Lord's Supper is because he's correcting them. He's rebuking the Corinthians for the way that they corrupted, the way that they perverted the preciousness of this ordinance. Several weeks ago, we began to look at these verses, or at least the verses leading up to this passage, and we discovered that Paul is absolutely horrified by the way the Corinthians were going about communion. So much so that notice what he said in verse 17. He said, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because... You come together not for the better, but for the worse. Now, whereas prior to this, Paul had praised the Corinthians in chapter 11, verse 2, just a few verses earlier, he actually praised them for receiving his teaching as having apostolic and divine authority. That's what he said in verse 2. But here, 
here he refuses. He absolutely refuses to praise the Corinthians. In fact, he says that the way they were approaching the Lord's table was so bad that they would be better off just staying at home rather than coming to church. Can you imagine a pastor saying that, an apostle saying that? But that's exactly what Paul is saying. He says that their gathering for church was actually detrimental to their spiritual health rather than beneficial. And then the apostle just proceeded to explain what they were doing so wrong when it came to the Lord's Supper. He told them in verse 18 that when they gathered for communion, which as I told you last time we studied this passage, communion in the early church was always preceded by a common church meal known as an agape feast or a love feast. He said when they gathered for this, there were divisions in the church, serious divisions. And then he explained a few verses later in verses 20 and 21 exactly what these divisions were about. Notice, He said, therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What was happening at Corinth was that the wealthy Christians, in bringing food and bringing wine, that's what they drank to, to the love feast, supposedly for the purpose of sharing it with others, especially those who were poor and had no food to bring, that's what they were supposed to do, But they weren't doing that. They weren't sharing them with these folks. Instead of waiting for the poor members of the church to arrive, and they probably could not arrive earlier because most of them were slaves and they couldn't get get off until their owner said, you can go. So instead of waiting for these poor members to arrive at church, these wealthy people, they just consumed all the food and the wine before the poor Christians even entered the church so that the rich were full and Paul said even drunk because they were drinking so much and the poor went away hungry because there was no food left for them to eat. So Paul said you're not you're not observing the Lord's Supper. This is contrary to the very spirit of the Lord's Supper. Now this is the division that Paul was referring to. There was a division (coughs) between the wealthy people in the church and the poor people in the church. And it was just horrible because it was a perversion of the very purpose of the common meal and the meaning of communion since these love feasts and the Lord's Supper were intended to express the unity and the love that existed between Christians. So what a disgraceful thing. What, what, a, what a travesty. What a mockery of the Lord's Supper. The very ordinance that was created by God to unite believers in Christ around his death was being used to divide them. So no wonder Paul said, I refuse to praise you. I will not praise you. And it's in light of the way that the Corinthians had so perverted and so distorted the Lord's Supper that Paul, led by the Holy Spirit, is compelled now to correct them. And he does it by teaching them the true meaning of the Lord's Supper and how it is to be observed. And he does this by going back He goes back in time to the very first time the Lord's Supper was celebrated by Jesus and the apostles when the Lord instituted his supper. The very night that he changed the observance of the Passover meal that remembered the Jewish people's deliverance from their bondage in Egypt to an observance that now remembered his people's deliverance from their bondage to sin by his soon-to-be substitutionary sacrifice. And so as Paul continues addressing the Corinthians on this very subject and telling them why he refuses to praise them, 
He now moves from telling them the wrong way that they were observing the Lord's Supper to telling them the correct way to observe it. And he starts off by saying in verse 23 that what he is about to tell them is not his opinion. It's not his opinion. What he's about to tell them concerning the Lord's Supper isn't something that he learned from other people, not even from other apostles. His information, he says, came directly from Jesus himself. It is divine revelation. He writes this at the beginning of verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. Now what Paul is saying is that it was Jesus who revealed to him what took place on the night that he instituted the Lord's Supper. Remember, Paul wasn't there in the upper room. It was an upper room in Jerusalem where this took place. Paul wasn't there. He wasn't there at all. Paul wasn't even a believer at that point. So he would have no way of knowing what went on that night. But at some point after Paul's conversion, the Lord revealed to him exactly what had happened that night in the upper room. And what Paul did then with this divinely revealed information that he received from Jesus, what he did with it, he says, is that he delivered it to the Corinthians, which means, folks, that he's already taught this to them. This wasn't new. He had previously communicated to them what the Lord had revealed to him about that first communion. Most likely he did this when he first visited Corinth. Acts chapter 18 tells us about that. He came to the city of Corinth. He preached the gospel there. He led many of them to faith in Christ and he established a local church. It was apparently at that very time that he taught them what he's going to remind them about in this passage. So listen, the Corinthians weren't ignorant about how they were to observe communion. They had been told, they had been taught by the apostle what they were supposed to do. They were just disobedient, sheer disobedience. Paul had faithfully passed on the truth to them about how to observe the Lord's Supper. They just chose to disregard it. And so, having established that what he's about to tell them came directly from Jesus himself, Paul now proceeds to remind them of how communion is supposed to be observed. And he does this by telling them how Jesus himself, how he observed the Lord's Supper, and what he said was the purpose for observing it. So let's look at verse 23, the rest of it. That the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed. Now the first thing Paul does is he gives us the historical setting, the historical context for the Lord's Supper. He tells us that Jesus instituted this ordinance on the very night that he was betrayed by Judas Iscariot. The very night of this treacherous scheme to arrest and then crucify him, while it was all taking place behind the scenes, that's when Jesus instituted, that very night, his supper. And that's significant because it reveals to us what a stark contrast there is between good and evil. What was taking place in the minds of the Jewish religious leaders and Judas himself and what Jesus was instituting. John MacArthur, commenting on this contrast, writes this. He said, The most beautiful and meaningful of Christian celebrations was instituted on the very night the Lord was betrayed and arrested. In the midst of the world's evil, God establishes his good. In the midst of Satan's wickedness, God plans his holiness. In the midst of Satan's absolute worst, the condemnation of the Son of God on the cross, God accomplished his absolute best, the sacrifice for the redemption of the world through the cross. And so, having told us now the historical context and setting for the Lord's Supper, 
It was the very night that he was being betrayed by Judas. The very next thing Paul does is he tells us how Jesus himself observed the Lord's Supper. Notice the rest of verse 23 and then into verse 24. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And Paul says that the very first thing that Jesus did is that he took bread. Now keep in mind that all of this, all of this took place while Jesus was in this upper room in the city of Jerusalem. And what was he doing there? He was celebrating the Passover with the apostles. And the way that Jewish people in our Lord's time celebrated the Passover was by taking a series of four cups of wine, and they would do this at different times, intervals, during the Passover meal. The Passover meal was not a quick thing. It was a long, drawn-out event. And in between the drinking of each cup, they would partake of some food while someone explained the meaning of Passover, that it was all about their deliverance from being slaves in Egypt. This was followed then by singing from some of the, the Psalms. Then some unleavened bread, what we call matzah, would be broken by the host, the host of, for the meal, and then passed around to the guests at the dinner table. And then the main meal of the night, roasted lamb, would be eaten. Now, it would appear then that based on what we know about how the Passover was celebrated, that it was during the time of the breaking of the unleavened bread, the matzah, that Jesus changed the Passover into the Lord's Supper. Because Paul says that Jesus took bread, he gave thanks for it, and then he broke it. And in doing this, the Lord was officially changing the meaning of the bread, the symbolism of the bread, which up to this time had represented the Jewish people's very quick exodus from Egypt. But now, now it would represent something else. Now it would represent his body. But listen, the fact that he broke the bread does not mean that his body was to be broken in the sense of any bones of his broken on the cross because very clearly according to the gospel of John, John chapter 19 verses 33 and 36, none of our Lord's bones were broken and that was a direct fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. So he's not talking about his body being broken in the sense that any bone was broken. See the breaking of the bread by Jesus which he then, as I said, he would have passed it, he would have broken it and then passed it to the apostles who were with him and spoke of the unity of all believers. He broke it and gave it to them so that they would understand that all would be partakers of the benefits of salvation. That's the meaning of it. He broke it, he gave it to them, they all participated in this. This is exactly what the Corinthians were guilty of not doing by excluding the poor people of their church from participating in the love feast and the Lord's Supper. The Corinthians were violating the very spirit of communion, which was to express the unity of all believers and their mutual participation in the benefits of Christ's death. That's why it's so important that when we as a church body, when we as a family known as Lakeside, when we observe the Lord's Supper, it's important that the whole body participates. That's the intent of the Lord's Supper, that it's for all believers and not just a part of the congregation. This is why the elders recently decided that from now on when we observe the Lord's Supper at Lakeside, it's going to be on a Sunday morning, not Sunday night. And we're going to do it on a Sunday morning when the whole church gathers because 
Really, Sunday night, just half the church is here. And we think that it's better to do it when the whole church is here because that's the very intent of this. It is intended for all the believers in a local church to experience it together, not just a segment of the church. So having told us what Jesus did in that he picked up the bread that was on the table, he gave thanks for it, he broke it, and then he passed out to his disciples. Paul then tells us what Jesus said. First, he tells us what he did. Now he tells us, in the rest of verse 24, what he said. And said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now with these words, Jesus revealed the meaning. He revealed the significance of the Lord's Supper. He said that the bread was symbolic of his body, which was for them. Meaning, them, his followers. Folks, this is a precious truth. You ought to meditate on this. Christ's incarnate body, the very reason he became a man would be so that he was crucified, he said, for you, for us. The wrath of God the Father would be poured out on him as the sacrificial lamb on behalf of us. He did it for you. He did it for us. Concerning the magnificence of our Lord's words, In telling each of his disciples that his body, he said, is for you, one Bible teacher wrote this, and I thought this is just precious and worth quoting. He said, for you are two of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture. Jesus gave his body, his entire incarnate life, for us who believe in him. I became a man for you. I gave the gospel for you. I suffered for you. I died for you. Our gracious, loving, magnanimous, merciful God became incarnate, not for himself, but for us. Beloved, this is what makes the the death of our Lord so precious, so wonderful. It was for you. It was not simply for an elect group of impersonal individuals. We believe in election. The Bible teaches that. But Jesus said, it's for you personally. His death was personal. And that's how you have to think of it. He had you in mind. If you're a believer, he had you in mind. And this is exactly how you have to approach the Lord's Supper. You have to think about Christ's death being personally for you. He loved you. He gave his life for you. That's exactly how Jesus wants you to approach his supper. Because not only did he say that his body was for you, He also said, do this in remembrance of me. You, since my body is given for you, you do this in remembrance of me. In other words, when you observe the Lord's Supper, you are to remember what Jesus did for you. He was judged in your place. He experienced hell for you. He tasted eternal condemnation for you. That's what you have to remember and think about. And in thinking about our Lord's words, we are to come then to the table, this supper. We are to remember his death on the cross, that it was for you, for us. I want to point out to you two things in relation to this. Number one is that this is a command of our Lord's. Do this in remembrance of me. Therefore, every believer is to obey this command. There is no reason, unless you're physically unable to do this, why you're not in church to celebrate the Lord's Supper. really don't have an option as to whether or not you're going to come to church and partake of communion. This is one reason why watching our church service by live stream, when you're physically able to attend the service, it's not right. It's wrong. Now, if you're not physically able to come, that's, that's one thing. But just to sit home 
and to watch on TV. That's not right, especially when we're having the Lord's Supper. Jesus commands you to partake of his supper with your brothers and sisters in Christ. We affirm his death for us, but we also are affirming that we are all partakers of the one body of Christ. So we remember, we do this, we gather. It's a command. We do this to remember what he's done for us. Secondly, it's important to understand to remember Christ's death on the cross doesn't simply mean that we casually think about it. To remember the death of Jesus is to think back to his crucifixion and to try to imagine in your minds what it was like for Jesus to experience such agony, such pain, such suffering on the cross and that it was all for you. We make a conscious effort to do this, not a casual thought about it. This is what makes the Lord's Supper so meaningful. We remember the significance of Christ's once and for all sacrifice for us. We do this, we give him praise, we worship him for literally enduring hell for us. But it doesn't stop there. As Paul continues writing about what Jesus did and what he said at the first supper, he tells us in verse 25, in the same way he took the cup also after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of of me. Now, as I told you a few minutes ago, during the, the Passover meal, there were four cups of wine that were consumed by the participants. Not all at once. It was spread out throughout the, the meal at different times. And so after eating the roasted lamb, which was the main part of the Passover meal, the Jewish people would then pray. And following this prayer, they would drink what's known as the third cup of wine. And it's this third cup of wine, it's actually known as the cup of thanksgiving, that Bible scholars believe it was this cup that Jesus picked up, blessed in prayer, and then turned the third cup, the cup of thanksgiving, into the cup of communion. At which time he declared these words. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So, just as the Lord changed the bread representing the Jewish people's very quick exodus from Egypt into a symbol of his body, likewise, he also changed the cup of wine representing the blood of the Passover lamb that the Jewish people would put on their doorposts and on their lintels in order to be delivered from the physical death as the angel of death came around. He turns it now into a symbol of his blood which delivers us not from physical death, but from eternal spiritual death. And Jesus specifically, notice, he referred to this cup as the new covenant in his blood. And the meaning of this is that the new covenant is different. It's not the old covenant. What is the old covenant? The old covenant is the Mosaic law, which God enacted at Mount Sinai. That's the Mosaic law. That was ratified then. But this is the new covenant And it's ratified, meaning it's established by Christ's blood being shed in his death on the cross. This is actually the meaning of the New Testament, the New Covenant, the New Testament. So what exactly is the New Covenant? Well, the New Covenant is a covenant that God promised Israel that he would then, when he enacted that, he would then replace the Old Covenant with the New Covenant, and thus the name Old and New. 
It was spoken of in a number of places in the Old Testament. The most prominent place is Jeremiah chapter 31, starting in verse 31 through 34. This is what God has promised Israel. They haven't experienced it yet. They will experience it as a nation when they turn to Christ at the end of the tribulation period. But this is what they have to look forward to. But this is what we as Christians have already spiritually entered into. We read these words, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That would be the old covenant. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. And here's the preciousness. Here's what's going to happen. And here's what's happened already to us. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. They'll not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they'll all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. You see, the old covenant, the Mosaic law, what what did it do? Well, it showed us our sin, but it couldn't take away our sin. It revealed to us our sin. It couldn't change us. It couldn't transform us. It couldn't make us different. It certainly couldn't forgive us. It only revealed to us that we were lawbreakers. But the new covenant is different. The new covenant, which as I said, someday... The nation of Israel, the Jewish people, who will live through the tribulation and turn to Christ, they will experience this as a nation. God has promised them that this is what's going to happen. But it's something now, as believers in Christ, we experience. And what we experience specifically is the blessing of a new life in Christ. I'll put my law within you. That's exactly what happens at regeneration. God regenerates us. He gives us a divine nature. He transforms us. We're not only forgiven of our sins, but we are new creatures in Christ. We're changed. We're not reformed. We're transformed on the inside. That's the new covenant. And their iniquity I will remember no more. So that when we come to the Lord's table, that's what Jesus wants us to remember. That by his death, and specifically the shedding of his blood while on the cross... Our sins have been removed from us, not simply covered, but removed so that we are forgiven. We are new creatures in him with a divine nature, as I said, that has completely transformed us so that we now want to obey him and we have the power and the ability to obey him. And now after telling us what Jesus did and what he said when he instituted and observed that first Lord's Supper, Paul ends this section on instructing the Corinthians about how... They are to observe the Lord's Supper. And he does this by stating, he's finished telling us what Jesus said. And now he states in his own inspired words of explanation, he states the importance of observing the Lord's Supper properly, which they were not doing. Notice what he states in verse 26 as he brings this section to a close. He says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The apostle says that every time we eat the bread and drink the cup at the Lord's Supper, we're doing something special. We are announcing to the world, we are proclaiming to unbelievers 
the message of the gospel, that it's only by the sacrificial death of Christ that anyone is saved. And we are to do this, Paul says, again and again and again until Jesus returns. Now, how often we do this, that's really left up to a church. Notice, if you look at verse 26, Paul doesn't say do this often. He says, for as often as you do this, it's left up to an individual church how often they do this. But when you do this, he wants us to know you're proclaiming to the world the death of Christ. This is our silent sermon to the world. The fact that you gather on a Sunday to observe the Lord's Supper, if unbelievers know about this, it speaks volumes to them. That you are testifying that the blood of Christ means something to you. The body of Christ crucified on the cross means something to you. You're announcing again and again to them the truth of the death of Christ. Now, what we've learned tonight is the right way to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're actually not celebrating it tonight, but at least you've learned what you're supposed to do. It's to be something that all who know Christ in this church are to celebrate together. So when we have it, and you know we're having it, don't stay home. Be here. It expresses our unity in Him. It expresses that we're all partakers together of this. It's a time for us to remember, to reflect, and to relive in our minds exactly what Jesus has done for us. That's why I give you some time to think about this, some time to, to ponder these things, to meditate on these things. It's a time for us to proclaim to the world how precious we consider Christ and his death to be, that he's the only way of salvation, otherwise we wouldn't do this. And we are to do this on a regular basis and not grow weary doing this and not become so familiar that it doesn't mean anything to us. We do it again and again and again until Jesus comes back. So if you're a believer, then you need to observe the Lord's Supper with these things in mind. If you're not a believer, then you need to understand there is no salvation apart from faith in Christ. Jesus died for sinners and he invites all sinners, including you, to come to him for salvation. So if you don't know him, as I always say at the close of a service, if you don't know him, this is the time to come to know him. Repent of your sin, turn to him, trust him for salvation. If you'd like to talk to one of our pastors about this, then as we close the service now, just come up and see me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this. These few verses by Paul that just so loaded with truth, Lord. You've given us some insight as to how the first Lord's Supper was celebrated. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you revealed this to Paul so many years ago, and he's passed it along to us and to every, to every Christian. Lord, help us to take seriously the Lord's Supper, to never just come with a flippant attitude, to not think just casually about what you've done for us, but to think hard, to relive in our minds, to imagine the pain, the agony, the suffering that you went through, and you did it for us. Lord, we can't thank you enough that it was for us. It's personal. It's not just for a group of people. It's not simply for those who are chosen. It's for us individually. You had us in mind, and that, that really blows our minds. We, we can't fully comprehend that, that you would love us individually, that you would care about us, that you would choose us and then die for us. Lord, I pray that your death would be so much more personal to each of us than it has been, that we would meditate and think about these things and love you all the more for it. 
We do pray, Lord, that if there's any here who have never trusted Christ, that just hearing about the preciousness of his death would be used to draw them to yourself. Not in an emotional way, but in a very calm way that they would understand they're sinners in need of a Savior, and Christ is the only one who can save because he's the only one who is qualified to pay for their sins. So we pray you'll draw them to yourself. For the rest of us, Lord, help us when we observe communion again in a few weeks. May we do it with great solemnness, great joy, but the great and the right heart attitude. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.